Someone once told me that when you go into an interview, you have to meet with essentially as many people as possible that you look up to to see how they did it, why they did it, who they met with and what they learned, and then ask those people for two to three more introductions. So I took that same philosophy when launching the business and just started meeting with as many people as I could mm -hmm. who had anything to do with startups, entrepreneurship, investing, and just started gauging their feedback. And that process was extremely eye-opening and I don't think you should do that the entire time when you're building a business, but in the first year or two, network with as many people as you can. And that's where you really build your foundation. So for me, in our last round, we ended up having like 30 investors. And a lot of those investors, those checks range from $5,000 to $100,000. I would say 80% of them I had been talking to for like three years. And that round would have never happened if I had not put in the groundwork early on. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst turned endurance athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest, Jack McNamara, founder and CEO of True Inc., is someone who's stepped back quite a bit in order to leap forward and get to where he is today. Before embarking full-time on entrepreneurship, Jack decided to drop a Division I hockey scholarship in order to play pro hockey over in Europe. It was while in Europe, surrounded by elite athletes putting unhealthy stuff into their bodies, when it became time to perform, that he got the inspiration to start True Energy. In what actually originated as a product aimed at innovating the liquor, the liquor industry is now a company that creates all-natural, functional beverages to optimize human performance from the elite athlete to the weekend warrior. In this interview, we first discuss the impact the current pandemic situation has had on his business, the genesis of True Energy and how it's evolved over time, his pro hockey days in Europe, and the sacrifices one makes and has to embrace while diving headfirst into entrepreneurship. And so, without further ado, my interview with Jack McNamara. So thanks for coming on the show, Jack. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Chase. Yeah. Um, so for startup entrepreneurs like yourself, um, I feel like something like the coronavirus and what's going on with all the craziness around that, um, all the economic consequences that have resulted could, could be like a death sentence for like companies like yourself and for you. Um, how has it impacted you and your business so far? Wow. We're starting the questions off really hot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well for us, it was really poor timing. Um, the last time we raised money was actually in December of 2018, and that was when everyone thought we were going to go into another recession then. So not the best timing on that front. And then we were actually talking to a VC about leading our next round about four months ago, and that fell through. So then we were, okay, plan B, that fell through. We went to plan C, and that was going great. And then all of a sudden, coronavirus hits, and everyone's kind of like worried, like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? You hear some people saying, oh, we're good, nothing, nothing. And then, sure enough, we're in, like, stay-at-home lockdown, and the market's getting absolutely crushed. And as you can imagine, 
when that happens, people are less inclined to want to invest into an energy shot business. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's definitely hard, but as I mentioned before the podcast, I think the companies that do find a way to survive are going to be better off, kind of like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, uh, I feel very strongly that we're going to survive this. It's uh, not a fun everyday battle, but it is what it is. Right. So what are you able to do during this time to kind of make it feel like you're making progress or to make progress? Uh, so my main goal on a day-to-day is fundraising. Yash is operations, so he's on the manufacturing front. And then Nick is doing sales. So how we adjust it is, okay... Let's just do this remotely. So we started working with different platforms, Trello, HubSpot. So I can basically track what Nick's doing. Nick can track what I'm doing. Uh, Yash is constantly manufacturing, and that's been moving forward, thankfully, because um, it all depends on what region you're manufacturing out of. And then on the fundraising front, we decided, okay, let's open up a convertible debt round, bring on as much capital as we can immediately, and then work with a fundraising partner, Genesis Innovation, to open up our investors to a new syndicate. And that was the right play for us. Uh, and we'll see if it plays out, but we're hedging our bets on a, a couple different fundraisers, essentially. Got it. Okay. Um, and have you ever thought about, I guess, with the times, creating an immune drink to keep athletes energized and healthy? Ironically, that's kind of how the business started. So I'm kind of sitting in a locker room in Norway. We're all drinking Red Bulls and coffees, and I, I wanted to create something that could provide the boost, yet you could still feel good about drinking. And ironically, when you do that, you're looking at eight B vitamins because all the vitamins work in concert with one another to convert proteins into energy. So that, in a way, is halfway to an immunity drink. Uh, we're missing vitamin C and maybe a couple of antioxidants, but for the most part, our energy drink kind of double plays right. two-edged sword that. So it's one of those things that maybe we pivot our marketing towards that. Um, but yeah, when you think of healthy, sometimes it also can convert to immunity to a degree. Right, that makes sense. So, And it sounds like if you wanted to go with like a full-blown immune drink at some point, um, it wouldn't be that hard. I guess. No, we, we, we could definitely... Ingredients-wise. Exactly. Yeah. We could definitely make it work. The issue is when we launch products, normally it takes us like 6 to 12 months to okay. look at competitors and do the research. So we're not a... Although we can move quickly, we don't want to give customers a, a half... I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, but half... Mm, oh, you can swear. <laughs> a half-assed approach. Yeah. So that's, that's why we... Uh, we take our time, even if there is an opportunity, we want to make sure it's the right product that we launch. Got it. Okay, cool. Uh, so when did your entrepreneurial journey all start for you? It wasn't first with True Energy, right? Uh, well, technically it wasn't. So I, I went to Colgate for two years, and I always wanted to start a business. Colgate is a great university, but it's liberal arts. I didn't really... I wasn't able to take any business courses. The closest thing was economics, and that did not bode well for me. Um, after three C pluses and three different courses, I was like, "Okay, time to do, <laughs> time to figure something else out." Yeah. So, so why did you go there originally? Was it for hockey? It was for hockey. Yeah, I, I was on a, a scholarship at Colgate, and I, I still did love the school. I got to play hockey with my brother, but uh, I did want to 
kind of carve out a new path and one that associated with with business and startups and entrepreneurship specifically. Uh, so I actually transferred to BC, played pro hockey abroad. And when I was in Denmark playing there, uh, I actually applied to Copenhagen Business School's School of Entrepreneurship. And I was kind of surprised they kind of let me participate despite not going to CBS. So that's really where it started. And it started with a packaging concept for the liquor industry called Kickstick. And eventually we pivoted that into True Energy or Drink True uh, and creating our own brand as opposed to just being a packaging company. Okay, and why did you decide to make the pivot from from Kickstick? Like, what was, uh, I guess, what was, I guess, the factor there? Uh, so I I did actually get a lot of interesting connections through Kickstick. Uh, we talked, we were connected to Malibu Rum at one point. Uh, met with okay. Bacardi, and I mean they were kind of just helping out a, a young entrepreneur, so to speak, and here I am thinking I'm going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg and sell the business for $10 million in 12 <laughs> months' time, and it's just unrealistic and naive, but uh, eventually I found out that it was a lost leader in the liquor industry, and people aren't going to spend extra money for a unique package design that's only going to make them lose more money. Slightly short-sighted, but... Uh, I just decided I don't really want to be in that industry. I I know we can pivot this into something that I'm passionate about, and it just happened to be kind of energy and functionality and sports and how I thought there was a huge gap in there. Right. Okay. And is there a defining moment for you that kind of sparked your entrepreneurial fire in the first place? Uh I kind of want to say I was born with it. I've always liked to create things. Uh, even when I was in school, I, I, I hate to say it, I didn't exactly love learning subjects that I had no interest in. But the, yeah, subjects, that, the <laughs> subjects that I loved, it was like I was getting A's. The subjects I didn't love, I was getting C minuses. So I was like, okay, wh- what am I doing well in? And it always happened to be the creative types of things. And growing up, I was kind of a Lego kid and... Marathon Mondays, I was always trying to like sell candies to make money. And I don't want to say I'm like greedy or love money. I just really loved creating businesses and creating something out of scratch. And I knew I was always going to start a business. It was just a matter of when. The kick in the butt was actually when I was doing software sales, making 150 cold calls into CTOs every, every day, not really knowing what I'm selling. That's when I knew, okay, it's, it's time to move on. Mm-hmm. Got it. So you did have a job after college that wasn't like uh, running your own business. I guess you could say that, but it only lasted two weeks and three and a half days. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) When you know, you know. Wow. And that was software sales? That was software sales. And I I actually learned a lot in those two and a half weeks, but uh, I just... I hate to say it, I felt like I was dying inside and I, I wanted to do something that I was passionate about, which is, again, I'm just throwing cliches into this podcast one after another. No, but it's, yeah. it, uh, my mom eventually, after like one month of trying to get into every accelerator, not only in Massachusetts or the United States, but literally anywhere that would take me, my mom was like, okay, Jack, it's time to get married, get a real job, and become an adult, <laughs> to which I said... Mom, give me like one more week. I moved to New York a week later with one of my good buddies and the rest is kind of history. So that's where we started. We did two accelerators in New York and uh, came back and I've 
been kind of pushing for it ever since. And what was it about um, being in a software salesman uh, that you just did not enjoy at all, or just being in that sort of role? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know any other analogy than like an assembly line. And again, very grateful for that opportunity, but when you look at it from afar, you realize like there's a CEO, a CTO, a CFO, you got the account managers, you got the BDRs, but when you come in every day and your one task is to make as many dials as possible with the hopes of having one conversation a day, I kind of took a step back and realized like, I don't know if I want to be spending a whole week's worth having five conversations with people that I don't really have a lot to talk about with. Um, yeah. Because a lot of sales, in my opinion, is about being genuine and and having a conversation that goes beyond business. So uh, if you and I were talking, it'd be talking about sports and we have that alignment and then maybe we can talk about business and how we can work together. But if you don't have that, sales becomes much more difficult. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you never, you can never see yourself going back to that sort of environment. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I mean, I, I still, if you look at any business, sales is the lifeblood of any business. So even with True, it's like, okay, we're going to need a sales team. And at the end of the day, their sales team, their role is going to be to get sales. And oftentimes that means you're doing basic tasks over and over and over again. But the one positive is finding guys who love the product and love what they're selling and can align with different people and have genuine conversations. That's where I think a real spark gets lit. Mm -hmm. So when we try to hire people, we try to find like-minded people in terms of what they love, but maybe bring something else to the table. So I would say everyone on our team really love sports, they're athletes, they care about what they put in their body, they take care of themselves, they work hard, but the personalities are all very different and we all have different backgrounds, so we all bring something unique to the table. Mm -hmm. And were you actually calling or were you emailing? Uh, what was the majority of your uh, cold outreach? Uh, it was calls and wow. <laughs> they were random, they were like, cold calling to the ninth degree. I'd have a list of people throughout the New York state and I would just keep dialing, just keep pressing number after number, CTO, CIO. Most people wouldn't answer. I, I would have calls where the gatekeeper, uh, essentially the secretary or um, account assistant or, or whatever, I, I would get on the phone and she'd be like, oh, who are you looking to talk to? I'm like, oh, I'm looking to talk to Jeff. And she's like, who are you? I'm, I'm Jack. Jack who? Uh, Jack from VM whatever. And then boom, like they'd hang up the phone immediately. So yeah. I can't say that I, I was the greatest salesman in the world, but yeah, it was 150 dials and everything was tracked. Wow. That's a, that's a grind. Yeah, it sure. was hard. I felt like I was having a heart attack every single time I made a call. Like my <laughs> palms were sweating. No, I, I get was, that. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was kind of miserable. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good learning experience. So I think everyone should have to do something like that in their life and, yeah, I would agree. Kind of harden themselves to a degree. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. Um, although it was uh, like two weeks and three days or how long you said it was, um, were you able to draw some, I guess, lessons, knowledge or insight um, from that to help you build true energy? 
Definitely. In fact, most of the things that I've learned that I've held on to actually came from really difficult situations that you're uncomfortable. Like I truly believe that discomfort breeds to a degree like performance and making yourself a, a better X, Y, or Z. So I think discomfort is where that growth actually happens. Yep. At VM Turbo, uh, which was the company that I work for now, Turbonomic, and again, grateful for the opportunity, wasn't for me. The things I learned was like you need to, you can't talk to people as if you're a robot. And I don't care what kind of widget you're selling, you need to, in the first three seconds, find out what makes someone tick. In the first week that I was there, they literally put us through a sales course. And I'd never been through anything like that in my life. Like, I expected them to just say, all right, Jack, this is what you do, and do it. Um, and there's different little things that, that you can, can do, different, I don't know, things that they coach you up on. But that's what it really came down to for me was being a human being. And they said you could use different little dialogues or cheat sheets on what to say, but... I think at the end of the day, you really need to learn the product and then just speak from the heart, which, again, I don't know why I'm saying so many cliches, but... Uh, there's uh, a reason they're yeah. cliches. <laughs> there's a reason yeah. they're cliches. But I, I think if you connect with someone on like a genuine level, they're more inclined to buy a product from you. And again, I'm not talking about selling snake oil. I'm talking about if you believe in a product and you can connect with people, you're going to be an amazing salesperson. Yeah, Um I would, I would agree with that also. And I think, at least for me, um, when I was doing outbound, outbound outreach at my last um, job, I found it to be very emotionally draining when there wasn't really any sort of emotional connection. There. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just very kind of like, do you want whatever service we were providing, which was a little different because we were a private equity firm, but it's still kind of, it's still the same. It's still sales. Big and, time. And if it's more just like solely business, I found it to be much more emotionally draining. Whereas if I could actually find some sort of connection with the CEO or entrepreneur, um, I actually found more energy from that. So I can definitely the, the appreciate other, that. The other thing I realized, and I don't want to say realized, it was just when I would go into work at 7 or 8 a.m. and you're surrounded by an a lot of like-minded individuals who are doing the same and working until like six to seven at night. That was like the realization for me is Jack thinks he works hard, but there are so many people out there that are working harder. Mm -hmm. And that's another reason why I think a lot of entrepreneurs do themselves a disservice by jumping right into the world of startups without like an experience of getting hardened in the real world. And I don't care if it's construction or cold calls or whatever, but you realize that regardless of the industry, people work really hard. And for me, I would always consider myself like a hard worker. And that was the moment I realized that working hard isn't enough. Like you need to do something different and it's about working smart. And yeah. I think to a degree, it's about having a unique experience. So when you go into an interview, let's say, I'm going into an interview and they're like, okay, what have you done? And I'm like, well, I went to college and uh, I did some pro hockey. Okay, we can talk about that now. That's like something unique that other people don't have. And I think that's what allows people to kind of hop off the page. Like uh, Chase doing the podcast. Like that, 
pops off the page for me versus just being another graduate out of school. Like that, yeah. that's something that I think people discount to a major degree. I think people need to do unique things, travel, uh, work crazy jobs so that when you arrive at that interview, you could talk about 10,000 different things and connect with 10,000 different types of people. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to win. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man, I would agree with, with that too. Yeah. <laughs> I love what you're saying. Uh, so let's, let's go to like true energy now. Um, I think you touched on it, uh, a little bit before, but maybe in a little bit more detail go into the inspiration for why you started, uh, true energy and, uh, the energy shots. For me, like I said, I always wanted to start a business, but like the origin story was literally, I, I couldn't understand why at every level of sport, there's artificial crap that floods the locker room. And like I, I used Gatorade, I, I used the five hour energy, the Red Bull, all these products. But what got me was like all these guys, as you go higher and higher, they're on vegan, paleo, keto diets, yet they're fueling their body with crap when they actually have to perform. And for me, that didn't make any sense. Granted, over the course of the last five years, there's been a lot of businesses kind of doing the same sort of thing and their approach and creating natural products. And I, I think it all makes sense. Like that was bound to happen. And we're constantly trying to innovate to stay true to ourselves and authentic to our story. But at the end of the day, it's really delivering performance to athletes and then last year we decided okay we can't just be a product for athletes like mm -hmm. everyday people going to work are looking for performance as well uh whether it's focus in the office uh pre-workout in the gym energy in the morning instead of a ninth cup of coffee uh relaxation sleep like there's so many drugs and artificial products on the market why not be the brand that offers the solution for everybody with natural herbal solutions and i'm a firm believer that you can get a lot of the benefits without the side effects and that's that's where we're where we play and we'll continue to play and uh we're going to probably launch cans and, and who knows where else we launch but we want to be an innovative company for the everyday athlete not just the elite athlete got it and so did you i guess at some point have the um I don't know if realization is the right word, but to uh, target essentially everyone outside of athletes, and then that would be more beneficial to your business rather than focusing on one specific niche, which is the athletes. There is there is a couple things that we noticed is for one, elite athletes uh, don't only avoid paying for products; they get paid to use products. So if you create a product for elite athletes, you're going to be paying them to use it. Not exactly the greatest business model. Yeah. And then when you go below that to college athletes, they oftentimes get a lot of their stuff for free. And college campuses also oftentimes have uh, exclusivity distribution contracts okay. with the Pepsis or the Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. And then when you go below that, it's like, okay, how do we get beyond this? So that's when we said we stepped back and said, okay, Athletes are no longer just MLB, NBA, NHL, NFL. Athletes are people that go to SoulCycle every day, that do yoga, that uh, go for a run once a week. Like The definition of athlete and sport has changed aggressively over the course of the last 12 months. And it's no longer people counting calories just in sport. Everyone that wants to live an active, healthy lifestyle 
is looking at what they're putting into their body. So that's when we took the step back and said, okay, there's a bigger problem at play. Uh, why solve a problem for a specific audience when we can solve it for the many? Uh, it does become a very difficult uh, capital-intensive problem to try to market to the many, but I think that's also where we can kind of spread our wings with a drink for every occasion type of deal. Okay, got it. So how many products do you currently have? We currently have six products. We're going to be launching a seventh, and then we'll take these shots and kind of evolve them into cans as well. Like a Coca-Cola can? Exactly. So okay. we're going to be doing skinny cans, and I can't name who the partner will likely be, but it's it's a major player, and they love what we're doing on the shot side. And I explained to them, I said, hey, for our mainstream audience of millennials and Gen Z, like they love our brand, but they don't necessarily drink shots. Like uh, if you look at the numbers, right. a lot of the shots are kind of the cut and construction worker, truck drivers, because honestly they want to boost, but they don't want to feel the bathroom every 10 minutes. And for us, like we have customers that want to enjoy a beverage over the course of 30 to 40 minutes. And that's where we said, okay, although our numbers are, are strong and margins are great and, the brand makes sense, we need to start appealing to that audience more. And that's why we okay. made the adjustment. Interesting. Okay. Cans next. Cans next. <laughs> and then who knows what's after that? I don't know. Yeah. It's one of those things, do you want to go deep with one product or two products, or do you want to just keep innovating? And there's many schools of thoughts on that, and uh, we'll see if we're right. Yeah. Which is your most popular? Uh, well, our initial product is True Energy, okay. um, which is essentially an, a natural alternative to 5-Hour Energy. Like, 5-Hour Energy works, but it does have preservatives. It does have artificial ingredients, so we just tried to mimic the performance side of that and try to remove the jitters and remove the artificial, and okay. uh, then that's when we launched the other products. And It depends on, ironically, where you sell it. Uh, so online people really like the dream product because they can subscribe to it and constantly have a good night's sleep versus okay. when you go to impulse purchases, maybe people aren't thinking top of mind sleep. Sure. They okay. think, oh, I'm tired right now. I'm going to grab an energy or a focus. Um, so it really depends on where we sell it. Interesting. Okay. And at a high level, what's the, I guess, ingredient composition for one of your energy shots? So how we went about designing or formulating each product uh, is very similar. So energy, I did a survey of 100 plus athletes ranging from high school to Olympians and asked, okay, what would you like to see in the product? Then I brought that to a dietitian and said, okay, these are what the athletes think they need. What do they actually need? And then we did a cross analysis of all the top selling brands and then also the brands that a lot of athletes trust from a natural standpoint and said, okay, which ingredients are in a lot of these products? How much is in them? Why? What are the benefits? And if there are side effects, let's remove those ingredients and simplify it. So then we brought all of that data to a formulation specialist who then decided, okay, this product is going to work, but it's going to taste like garbage. So that's when you have to start making some minor concessions to make a product taste great. So at the end of the okay. day, like a customer... And I talked to some trainers. They're like, hey, Jack, I'll drink whatever you give me if it means I can 
grow taller, score more goals or whatever. I don't care what it tastes like. The sad reality is most consumers need a product that tastes great, so that's where we, we have to add sweetener and, and those yeah, things. Yeah. Like, obviously, we'd like to avoid it, but we use natural sweeteners. Mm-hmm. So my point is you do have to make some concessions, but we don't make major concessions. Okay, but very much keep it natural. and Yeah, we stick to using natural sweeteners, avoiding preservatives, avoiding artificial flavors, and, and really sticking to our guns on that stuff and uh, use as few or little of sweetener as possible and arrive with a product that, that tastes great, does the job, doesn't have as many or if any side effects, and people can truly drink it and feel good about drinking it. That's the goal. Awesome. Okay. Uh, and when did you, when did you start working on this? Uh, I mean, technically that original company I was working on in like 2012 in, uh, Denmark. But when I took <laughs> it full time, it was really, we incorporated in 2015. So that's when okay. we were in the two accelerators in New York. That's when we really started taking it seriously. Uh, and We've been growing ever since, not at the clip that we would love, not at that Mark Zuckerberg clip that I had hoped for, but every year we're sure. growing and it continues just to put fuel on the fire. And I feel really good about it, despite the economic downturn and kind of punching us in the face. But it kind of is what it is. And you roll with the punches and yeah, yeah, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and you, you mentioned that... Uh, you worked in some accelerators, accelerators, um, but I guess how methodical were you in turning your idea into an actual business? Like, did you like were you following like uh, like strictly following typical business school type methodologies, like kind of like step by step, or were you more on the side of figuring it out as you go? So when I eat dinner, let's say I have peas, mashed potatoes, and meatloaf, I eat one thing at a time. I know that's strange, maybe that's psychotic, but that's like how I go about it with mm-hmm. business. Like I figure out uh, which is our biggest problem, let's try to solve it. And I don't know actually what the business school methodology is, but I'm sure we did not do it. Uh, so we, we started by, okay, this is the product. We went through that whole whole formulation phase. And how you're supposed to build a beverage is find out a manufacturer who can actually formulate this stuff and and make it kind of what you expected, a contract manufacturer, if you don't want to build it in-house. Building it in-house would be extremely expensive and capital intensive. Once you have that, you find out what kind of cans or customizations they can make on their line so that you can keep the cost as low as possible. And then you pay for a low, short run and create the product and test the market. Where we screwed up is we said, okay, a lot of the shop products that are entering the market right now, they're using the same exact package design. We were like, okay, we got to do something different. So without any beverage experience, I'm talking to guys who are running like 10 million plus shop businesses, and they're like, Jack, do not launch with a different design. And thick-headed me goes, absolutely, we're going to do it. So we had to find like a place to customize our bottles, which cost crazy tooling fees, mm-hmm. and then we had to find a manufacturer who was willing to make the adjustments on their line, also going to cost us more per unit, and then eventually we found it. If I were to do it all over again, I would say maybe the business approach, the business school approach is like find who can do this and do it cost effectively out of the gate and test 
the concept first. Mm-hmm. Granted, we still have that custom design. I think it's cool, but fast forward five years and we're actually probably going to be going into a more standard bottle because it makes more sense. And ironically, people will know it's a beverage versus the product they look at now. They may not be able to depict it's a beverage in the first three seconds. So it's the little things okay, that yeah. you realize. And the last thing is when I started the business, I was always very defensive. So if you told me, if Chase said, hey, uh, Jack, I don't like the taste of your product, I'd be like, screw you, Chase, it tastes great. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's not the right way to build a business. You kind of have to have an open mindset. And now yep. when anyone tells me like, hey, Jack, I would make this adjustment, I, I take it very seriously. And I've realized my opinion doesn't even matter. It's the opinion of the customer. It's the opinion of the random guy on the street. Uh, I would actually say it's the opinion of my family because they're brutally honest and that's kind of the way to build a product that gets accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you say bottle, my, my, I'm picturing like a five-hour energy type thing. Is that what you, what you mean? Yes. So instead of doing the five-hour energy type of bullet Boston bottle or whatever you call it, we went with a rectangular prism type of bottle. and. It looks really cool, but if you looked at it from 100 yards away, you wouldn't know it's a beverage. Mm-hmm. Like Inherently, us as human beings can walk down a store shelf and be able to tell you that's a pasta jar or a thing of uh, tomato sauce without even having to see a label on it. Sure. But for us, it's, okay, what does that mean? You have to pick it up, look at it, read it, and that does create problems. Right. And what makes you think that you can succeed in a space that's so competitive with brands like Red Bull, Five Hour Energy, and Monster Energy, just to name a few? Uh, so if I'm going to be honest with myself, I don't necessarily think that we have the budget to compete with the Red Bull, the Monster, or the Five Hour Energy today. Uh, however, the reason I sleep well at night with investors' money is because I know that we're building this the best possible way, the smart way. And what I mean by that is from a valuation standpoint, a lot of companies go out of the gates with the highest valuation possible. And then they celebrate that. But the problem is when you do that, when you go to raise the next round, you better have exploded your revenues. Otherwise, you're dead in the water. For us, we took a very reasonable approach at the valuation saying, okay, Jack's not going to end up with 99% of this business at the end of the day, but... We're going to have a bunch of investors who are very happy at the end of the day because we, we went from this valuation to this valuation to this valuation. And we're very conscientious of why we use those numbers because the way I look at valuations is, okay, are we raising enough money to increase the valuation enough so that everyone's happy and then be able to do it over and over and over again? And I think a lot of startups, and I was one of them, go out of the gates thinking they've kind of solved the world's problems and try to raise at tremendous valuations and I'm wasting a lot of time. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, do will we exit for $10 billion? Maybe not, but I feel comfortable with the fact that we may be able to exit for $10 million, $20 million, $100 million if we continue to go the route we're going by getting a little bit better every day. And my dad used the analogy, and his dad actually told him this, when he got into the world of insurance, he met with one of the, the bigger players in the area and, and he was like, I'm, I'm very frustrated. And his dad said, hey, at the end of the day, yeah, you're frustrated, but how long did it take you to become a hockey player 
a Division One, a pro hockey player. He goes, eh, 20 years. He's like, you have to have that same mindset for business. Like, it's not going to happen overnight, and I don't think it happens for startups overnight either. Granted, it happens to a, a few that end up being the unicorns in a matter of three years, but the other businesses are the ones that grow smart and kind of take it on the chin when they need to and have a smart strategy with numerous backup plans so that eventually it's a situation that everyone's happy. And for us, that's how we play it. Interesting. So your, I guess, ultimate vision for this isn't to, or maybe it could be, but isn't to, I guess, be in that same sort of, I guess, scale as Red Bull, Five Hour or Monster, but to be kind of this more annoying, smaller player, I guess, that kind of takes this small piece out of the market, but it's still substantial enough to make an impact in, among a large customer base, I guess, if that's a... Uh, no, it's 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 fair, totally fair comment. For me, I would love to be the next Red Bull. Mm-hmm. But where we stand right now and the growth that we've had, the more likely scenario is we annoy the crap out of enough of these guys enough that they buy us. Mm-hmm. That is like the most likely okay. scenario. Mm-hmm. However, if we continue to grow and eventually have that hockey stick type of growth, then I would like to be the Red Bull. But okay. I also think a lot of these companies are doing their investors a disservice by selling them on that dream of being a 10-time Hall of Famer. Like No one knows that fact, but I can sell them on the fact that I believe that you'll have a successful exit, and that's how I look at it. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and did you have, um, or did you quickly build a strong mentor network as you were starting True Energy? I wouldn't say quickly, but uh, someone once told me that when you go into an interview, you have to meet with essentially as many people as possible that you look up to, to see how they did it, why they did it, who they met with and what they learned, and then ask those people for two to three more introductions. So I took that same philosophy when launching the business and just started meeting with as many people as I could Mm -hmm. who had anything to do with startups, entrepreneurship, investing, and just started gauging their feedback. And that process was extremely eye-opening and I don't think you should do that the entire time when you're building a business but in the first year or two network with as many people as you can and that's where you really build your foundation so for me in our last round we ended up having like 30 investors and a lot of those investors those checks range from five thousand dollars to a hundred thousand dollars I would say 80 percent of them I had been talking to for like three years And that round would have never happened if I had not put in the groundwork early on. And most of those guys are now mentors. And I have the traditional mentors, but I then also had the investors who really want to add value as opposed to just asking for updates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that idea around networking can be applied to, like, anyone who wants, like, their dream job or something like that, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, just meeting as many people as possible in that space, people who kind of you see their life now or, or their job now, and you want to, I guess, get to that point, like just talk to them. Yeah. Um, and I did a similar sort of, 
uh, process and how I got to my last, um, my last job was, um, I started talking to, uh, Tom Roberts, who's the founder of Equality, um, the summer after my freshman year at Bentley and just, just kept on staying in touch with them. Like, Hey, you want to grab coffee? Hop on a call, hop on a quick call for 15 minutes, um, without trying to be too annoying. And, uh, the summer after my senior year, um, I got an email from him, uh, sort of out of the blue saying, Hey, meet me at this coffee shop in Southborough, Massachusetts. And in that meeting, he offered me the job to be the first employee at Equality. No way. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So I can that, you know, definitely meet as many people as uh, you can, but definitely nurture the ones and focus on the ones that you think will have the most impact or that you think are the most important because you never know what might happen. I could not agree more. And the the other big thing is some people will just reach out to as many people as possible versus like writing a handwritten note or a personal email to the 10 people that you really want to get to know. And I'm not saying all 10 will meet with you, but I was so stunned by the high percentage of people who are willing to meet with someone who has a serious passion for that industry, whether it's trying to get involved in it, trying to get hired in it. Uh, the network effect is is real, and I think more people should take advantage of it and not wait until, okay, I need to get a job, but like start nurturing that like sophomore, junior year. Because mm-hmm. people want to help. If yeah. you're respectful and you obviously send like a personalized email, not some cookie cutter thing that no one's going to read. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what's been um, the general response you've gotten from athletes who have switched to true from other energy drinks? So we, we do have some, some guys that organically use the product and just to protect them. And I know they have sponsorships. So if I wouldn't name them, but we yeah, sure. any guys in the NHL that, that use our product and uh, the reason they use it is because it works. And like I said, they can kind of feel good about drinking it mm-hmm. and it doesn't come with a lot of the typical effects of the jitters and, and whatnot. Then there's also the guys who I've personally played with or know through the grapevine and we just constantly ask for their feedback and most of the time it's it's great feedback and the times it's not we then go back to the drawing board and say okay how can we adjust this to appeal to that audience a little better Um, but at the same time we still want to stay true to our our guns so to speak Um, so I think the feedback's been great initially when we launched the product it tasted like tree bark but it worked (laughs) over time we've made hundreds of adjustments and now we have a product that tastes great that we can feel good about mm-hmm. delivering. Got it. That's awesome. And how about, um, same feedback from like say office workers? It's, it's, it's definitely different. I, I would say athletes are, <laughs> have grown to grown up in a world where they're eating protein that tastes like cardboard as long as it's going to make them perform better. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they don't mind as much. Um, the office workers, uh, granted, there's a lot of former athletes and, and, yeah. and the like, but uh, we did have to make more and more adjustments as we went from elite athlete to mainstream audience to make a product that tastes great. And if you look at any company that's getting that's gotten acquired in the energy drink or beverage space, regardless of the claims that they're making, the products taste amazing. And buy is a perfect example, like just sold for... 1.7 or 1.8 billion 8x revenue or something crazy like that. 
the product has five calories, antioxidants, but it still tastes unbelievable. And that guy then went on to start Crook and Marker because I probably loves the industry and loves building things. Mm-hmm. They stay true to that philosophy about the product needs to taste great. Yeah. And I did not come into the world with that philosophy. I said, no, the product needs to work. In fact, it needs to do both. And that's why it's that constant battle. Got it. So what's the most common critique that you tend to hear from investors and why they decide to not invest in, in true energy? Ooh, that's a tough one. It's, it's hard because a lot of times when you meet with investors who, who, who say no, they'll say maybe, and you don't necessarily get their most honest feedback. Uh, and that just ends up kicking the can down the road. But for the people that say no, one big pushback that we get is I don't come from this industry. So mm-hmm. energy drinks or food and beverage in general really requires a certain type of personality or a certain type of investor. Uh, in Boston, for example, there are a lot of like medical biotech investors. Those guys aren't necessarily going to be looking to invest in a food or beverage. So the people that we've got to invest, even if they come from like a private equity world, they're not investing in us from their fund. They're personally investing because they believe in me or the vision or, or something like that. So that's that's number one is like, hey, I don't come from the industry. Now, if we look at a product standpoint, probably a year ago, some of the pushback was like, you need to make it taste better. Well, we went back to the drawing board and made it taste better. Uh, the third thing is more of a customer feedback. They didn't know it was a beverage. And that's something that we're constantly kind of working with because it's also one of our biggest differentiators. You look on the shelf and you say, oh, that's true. But if you're a first-time customer, you're like, what is that? Mm-hmm. And that's that's probably the thing that's top of mind that we need to fix. Mm-hmm. Got it. So it's not it's not just one, it's a, a few things. Yeah, there, so there's no such thing as a perfect product in my mind. Yeah. Even if we sold this thing for a trillion dollars, I don't think we have the perfect product. I think there's always adjustments that you can make to make a better product. Sure. Make a better widget, make what, better whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the mindset we've always had. Yeah. And once you think that you have made it, that's when other competitors start to pass you. Yeah, that's when they start eating your lunch, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, talk to me about the lifeguard ad for True Energy and how you thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I did take a basic acting course at Colgate, so I, I felt okay. like I had some form of credibility to star in this, this crazy ad that we were developing. Uh, we had so many different ideas to, to get the product out there, and... We arrived or landed on the lifeguard because the lifeguard saves your life. So we wanted true to be the thing to save your day. Mm-hmm. And we also thought it would be kind of a, a funny ad to, to poke fun at me by wearing a Speedo on Hermosa Beach when people are like whistling in a hilarious sort of way when we're trying to shoot the ad and all that stuff. I, I think you got to be willing to make fun of yourself a little bit and not take yourself too seriously. And I think people appreciate that. And uh, I mean, we were hoping that it was going to turn into something like Dollar Shave Club. But then again, I'm an eternal optimist. It it ended up getting some good traction and we had a lot of fun with it. And I would say it was a success, but it wasn't, it didn't go viral or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it was really fun to shoot. I don't regret it. I don't think anyone else regrets it. And it's just, we're, Step into the plate and trying to take a swing. And 
Sometimes yeah. we'll try to do it with humor, and other times we'll try to do it with something serious. And to a degree, I don't even think we've really found out exactly who we are. Every time we do something like that, we get closer. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to take chances, otherwise you're going to be doing nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's found a good amount of views on YouTube. Yeah. I think it's like <laughs> hundreds of thousands. Yeah. yeah. I would have liked to have tens of millions. Of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I want to go back to your pro hockey days in Europe. Um, I think it's really interesting. Uh, you played pro hockey in Europe while you were also in college, right? Yeah. How did you pull that off? So I went to Colgate for two years knocked off like 30 credits or I don't even know if I'm doing my math correctly. It's been a long time. Knocked off half the credits. Yeah. So I went to, to BC and I actually applied to two other schools. I applied to Holy Cross because that's where my two younger brothers were playing. They didn't accept any transfers that year. And then I applied to BU and I didn't get in the business school and I was like, okay, that's half the reason why I want to transfer. Uh, so I said, okay, mom and dad, I, I want to go play pro hockey. And they go, absolutely not. And then I said, no, I, I, I really think this is a good idea. I, I think we should drop the scholarship and go play pro hockey in Europe for like the same amount of money you'd make for like working at McDonald's. And I was like, <laughs> wow. they, as you can imagine, they, they probably weren't in love with that idea. And I sold them on the fact that, okay, what if I still get my degree? And they're like, fine, if you get your degree, you can go. I was like, all right, perfect. So I went to BC and I asked them if they would like, would they help my parents because they actually went to BC as well, see if they'd create a customized curriculum to allow me to do it in the summers. Mm-hmm. So I actually went to the summer school with all of the football players and all, all those guys and did a major called Corporate Systems, which in a way allowed me to handpick things that I thought had something to do with entrepreneurship. And I would come home from playing in Europe and take as many courses as I possibly could, go back and play in Europe and do it again. During the summers, you'd come back? Yeah, during okay. the summers, I'd come back and, and take as many courses as possible. And then when I played, I would take any online course that BC offered. So I think I took like three online courses. When I was playing in Norway, I was actually waking up, setting an alarm to wake up at 1 a.m. to take a class once a week online because I had to actually be <laughs> on the class. Uh-huh. And that was kind of difficult, but it was also pretty funny because everyone's like down the street from BC taking the course. I'm like, oh, I'm in Norway. So it was it was a fun experience. Yeah. And I ironically ended up only graduating a semester late. So instead of graduating the spring of 2014, I graduated in the winter of 2014. So okay. no regrets there. That was an unbelievable experience. I didn't get like a senior spring or anything like that, but <laughs> yeah. I had my own senior springs in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess outside of your parents, did other people think you were crazy by doing this? Uh, within my own family, an extended family at that, we all live within a five-mile radius. I don't think anyone was surprised that I was going to do something crazy like this because okay. they almost expected of me. Okay. I would say any outsider that looked at what I was doing, though, would say that is a bad idea. And ironically, people would look at it and say, oh, why would Jack leave an amazing school? Well, granted, that that is a tough decision to make, but by doing so, I think now if I talk to someone, you step out of the page slightly by being able to talk about experience, being able to talk about like political perspectives of other countries by actually having these conversations with people Mm -hmm. abroad. So I think that's like 
the biggest thing is drawing on experience and experiences rather than drawing on experiences from a book. They're they're both valid, but they're both very different. Yeah. And so how many years did you end up playing over there? I played juniors in Sweden, and then I played a year in Denmark, and then a year in Slovakia and Norway, half and half. Well, it was actually a month and a half to eight months, but yeah, okay. it, was a, it was a crazy experience, and I was actually going to play in Germany, and the contract actually didn't go in before the deadline, so I was kind of just stuck with nothing. And when that happened, it was like, okay, time to join the real world. And that happened right when I graduated. So I, okay. I don't want to say I took it as a sign from God, but <laughs> it was just all happened to work out perfectly. And that's happened so many times in my life where I think that if you work really hard and put all your ducks in a row, good things are bound to happen. And in sports, in business, in fundraising, it just happens to work out at the end if you just do the right thing and work your ass off. Yeah. Uh, so did a lot of people, a lot of the players speak English? Different experiences in different teams. Okay. So Sweden, uh, I was like 19 at the time. This was before college. The really young guys on the team didn't really speak English or they didn't have any confidence. The guys that were my age spoke it perfectly. Then when I went to Denmark, that country is unbelievable. Everyone speaks English really well. Mm -hmm. uh, Norway, same sort of deal. But when I went to Slovakia, that was like the first real experience in terms of like getting out of my comfort zone. Packing my hockey bag and a backpack and going on a train to Denmark was certainly uh, a tough decision to make and I was nervous and out of my comfort zone. But going to Slovakia and entering a locker room where there's no imports, like Sweden, Denmark, all these teams had some imports from U.S. or Canada or whatever. In Slovakia, I was the only guy outside of Slovakia and Czech Republic. <laughs> so when they put me with a defensive partner, he was from the Czech, and he did not speak any English. And I remember, like, clear as day, we're playing a game, and we're both mad at each other. And we just start yelling at each other on the bench because we're both frustrated. Neither of us understands the other one. And then we just go out and do our shift and then come back and just tap each other on the knee pad because we're just like, nah, whatever. <laughs> so that was like a really cool experience yeah. for me. And it wasn't, it, no one meant anything mean by it, but it was just like heat of the moment. And that's never something I'll ever probably have again is a moment like that. And then another moment, uh, the goalie who actually played at Alaska, he was a guy who had the American experience and really good guy. He was my translator. So the coach called me over and, and said, hey, Jack, I, I need to talk to you. And he didn't speak any English, so the goalie's translating everything. So the goalie goes, hey, uh, Jack, I'm sorry, man, but uh, they're letting you go. And he's like, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was luckily after a good game, so I didn't believe it. But it was uh, just experiences like that that I'm like kind of living in a an older hotel by myself, trying to like get this business off the ground and in Slovakia. It's just like kind of days that I'll always look back at fondly. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned it briefly before, but uh, what kind of new perspectives were you able to gain from living in and playing hockey over in Europe? You know, whether it be on perspective on you know life, work, or something else. Uh, to a degree, I think it. It made me mature a lot faster. 
Um, so after high school, you kind of think you're big man on the block type of deal. And then I, I went to, to Sweden and you realize like, yeah, maybe you're good in like your town or your state or even the country, but you realize that there's so many other places out there that guys are working hard, just like what I was talking about with just business in general. Yep. So I get into this locker room, 19 years old, and the kids are all unbelievable. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I was ex- I was expecting this in college, but I wasn't expecting this in junior hockey. And sure enough, fast forward 10 years, two of those guys are playing in the NHL now. And it's like now I can go to a game and say, oh, those two guys I, I grew up playing with type of thing. And, and mm-hmm. that's... That's really cool. So that, that experience was number one is like, there's so many people out there that are working harder and are better than you. So you better do something extra, mm-hmm. whether it's doing an 11th push up instead of a 10th. Like that's, that's really what it comes down to in terms of like experiences beyond that. Like I realized, and I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings by saying this, but a lot of kids that go to college, they waste their degrees and they have a lot of fun doing it. I remember in a class, like, just one kid had partied all night long. It was just like a puddle and definitely didn't do anything the entire class. And I'm just thinking, like, college is anywhere from, like, $15,000 to $100,000 a year now. And it's like, how can you waste that opportunity? And I think it's to a degree that we're a little immature. And in Europe, I found that a lot of the kids just matured earlier because they're leaving their families to play pro sports or junior hockey when they're like 14 years old. And I remember meeting this one kid. I was like, how old are you? He's like 14. I was like, wait, so where do you live? He's like, I live in, in the city by myself. And that wow. was just so like mind boggling mm-hmm. to me. It's like those moments that I realized that it's not the same everywhere. And their positions on whether or not we should be in a war or something like that, I'm not going to take sides, but it really opened my eyes to like perspectives of other people and other cultures and what they kind of think of us as Americans. And obviously I am all wholehearted, full-blooded American. I I believe in most of what we do, but just hearing that other perspective kind of like made me aware. Um, So that was, that was another eye-opening thing for me. And then like kids just like living in the cities with, with, their girlfriend or whatever is just so different to me. And then I go to college and like guys are just losing their mind. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. But then I like take a step back. I'm like, wait, those other kids were like 18 and acting way more adult like. And that was just, it was just strange <laughs> yeah. for me. It was like, I was in this, this binary situation where I was like, well, how do you act? How are you supposed to act? And mm-hmm. I kind of sided with the, the European side, which is maybe why mm-hmm. I went to go play Europe instead of those extra two years. And yeah. It is what it is, and I I appreciate both experiences, but that was like the biggest eye opener for me. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And so I guess shifting back to entrepreneurship now. Before you decided, um, well, I guess you said that you were maybe like born to be an entrepreneur, but before you decided to really take the full on leap into starting True Energy, um, do you think you were mentally ready to embrace? the sacrifices that could come with it, like couch surfing or an inconsistent food, lack of social life, etc. Uh, let's put it this way. I do think I was ready for it, but looking in hindsight, I didn't realize how much it was truly going to take. 
Like I, I going into it, I was like, I'm ready to dive into this world and give it an honest shake. But now you look back and it's like, damn, Jack, you spent five years in this grind. And it's like, you lived in New York sleeping on couches. You were sleeping in couches in all your buddies' places when you're traveling around trying to get sales or investors or, or whatever. And, and here I am, like, to be brutally honest, it's not like I have a huge bank account or anything like that. Everything I do for the past five years has been for the business. So most of my worth is tied into equity. Mm-hmm. And this business, if it's successful five years from now, it's going to be Happy Jack. Or five years from now, it's going to be Jack's got nothing. And that's like a real risk because it's like, oh, man, like the one true benefit of all this, though, is even if it were fail and fail, I don't even like saying that. I struggled to say that Mm. is the experiences have been unbelievable. The people I've I've met have been unbelievable. The people who have supported me have like I consider family at this point. So from that standpoint, I, I will never regret it the experiences and all that but it is uh very stressful and it's a sad reality because there are a lot of uncontrollables and coronavirus is a perfect example it's like we were doing so many good things right and then something shit hits the fan and now we're we're in a very rough situation and poorly timed opportunity with the fundraise so you just need to be willing to roll with the punches and live day by day Try to get a little bit better every day, but I, I'd be lying if I if I said I thought that I'd be in this situation right now. I would have thought that we were like flying on all cylinders at this point. Mm-hmm. But I'm also happy with where we are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I think it's unfathomable for me to even think that whether, regardless of whether or not you um, you know have a really successful exit or not, that you'll be a fail. Um, just with all the experiences that you've gained through True Energy, yeah. um, just whatever you decide to do next, I think I can't even imagine like how much you've learned through doing this. Um, uh, it's more about like letting people down, and I, I know I've had this conversation with some sure. of our investors, and they're like, "Jack, if like I'm a big boy, I know what I was investing, and in. I know it's a risk, and I know it's not a guarantee that you're successful." And I appreciate those conversations, but at the end of the day, I have friends, family. Uh, mentors who have invested significant amounts of money. If it fails, like I, I lost their money. Sure. And regardless of what they say, I won't sleep well at night knowing that. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason why when someone says, Jack, if, hey, if it fails, no big deal. I say, I appreciate you saying that, but there's 30 other guys that I feel like I owe this to. And yeah. it might be the wrong way to look at it, but I don't care. It's, it's who I am. <laughs> No, I think that's definitely the right way to look at it. Um, I guess the way that I was looking at it was very selfishly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Like, yeah, in, in a way, I I got like a business degree, mm-hmm. but it's again on other people's coin. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah for sure. No, it's, it's a reality of what it is. Yeah. Um. So, of, of all the hardships and sacrifices that you've had to, I guess, embrace as part of this journey, um, what has been the hardest for you to deal with? Mm, if I'm going to be honest, I'm going to say kind of the compare game. And that's if, if I look at other entrepreneurs and I'm like, oh, damn, they're, they're doing millions upon millions of dollars of sales. I'm like, shit, why aren't we there? What, mm-hmm. what have we done wrong? 
And that's a dangerous game to play in sports. It's a dangerous game to play in business. It's a dangerous game to play the compare game with anyone. So you just got to kind of live in the moment, so to speak. So, so that part, I'm like, damn, I, I just wish we, we were at a higher level just crushing it. The other unfortunate thing is the stress about it. I didn't realize the stress was going to be so high. And stress is like a self-inflicted thing. Like you don't need to be stressed. It's kind of your decision. Um, but when people invest, it's like I, I feel that stress because I, I don't want to let anyone down. And then you also have to have a lot of uncomfortable situations and conversations because different people bring different amounts of worth to the business. Some purely tie that to an investment. Others add value in other ways with introductions. And um, at the end of the day, I, I can't honestly say that I've compensated everyone perfectly because you have so many people helping you. You can't tie a compensation to everything. So that that's also kind of difficult because I, I would love to compensate everyone appropriately for for doing X, Y or Z and making sure everyone's happy. But that's that's the other side is everyone will not be happy at the end of the day, even if we were <laughs> yeah. the next rock star. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to piss off a few people. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the unfortunate thing. And for me, if you win a championship, like you'd like to think everyone's happy, but it's not the truth. If you win a Stanley Cup. There's going to be a few guys that were sitting in the stands that game. There's going to be a few guys who didn't play as much as they wanted to play. And I think that's just life. But as a manager, as a coach, you just need to make the best decision you possibly can in that moment. And that's what I struggle with. Yeah, you can't you can't please everyone. No. Yeah. And I want to. And that's that's the most difficult part. Yeah. And that ups the stress. Yeah, that ups the stress. Yeah. On a scale of 1 to 10, let's say... How stressed out are you on a daily basis? And what do you do to help manage that stress? Uh, I'd say I'm, I don't know if that's a good thing. I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing. So if I'm doing something that is stressful, I'm extremely stressed in that moment. But as soon as I go to the next thing, I kind of forget about it. So that's where it ends up being like moments of extremely high stress where I feel like my hair is falling out. And I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. But as soon as that objective is done or I've moved on from it, then I feel like, okay, I'm good. Uh, but I, I also do think you need to do certain things to kind of counteract or combat that stress. And for me, it's working out. I actually think working out is the greatest stress reliever there is. Yep. Uh, like working out in the morning. We have a group that works out in the mornings at like 530 every single day. Uh coronavirus has gotten in the way of that. So I went for a run today and just those moments actually helped me relieve the stress in a massive way. So I don't know what I do without like sports or training or anything like that. And I also make sure that every day I kind of set aside some time for myself, whether it's watching a TV show right before bed to unwind. I I know that's not like exactly bettering myself, but I think you need to unwind. Otherwise you're screwed. Yeah. 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 I would, uh, I would uh, I would definitely agree with that. Um, what's it like to work under a gym? <laughs> uh, so when we started the business, it was like working out of uh, an accelerator, which was awesome. And then I ended up working out of BC half the time because I didn't have office space. Then I'm working at home. And then I'm, I'm working in a conference room. Working in the basement of a jiu-jitsu facility is actually unbelievable. Like, we have a lot of space down here. 
the bathroom is upstairs in like a hundred yard walk. But other than that, it's pretty good. Worst case scenario, there's someone upstairs and we actually have to walk outside to go to the bathroom. I feel like we have to go to an outhouse type of thing. <laughs> uh, but no, it's cool. We, we got a good group and we can kind of yell at each other across the room and yeah. I mean, it's not the coolest space because we, we got some trash over here, but other than that, it's like a, a really nice space. Yeah, no, it's cool. Very, uh, very startup-y. And for people listening, um, we're doing this in person, so we're doing this in his, uh, in his office beneath the jujitsu facility. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, started painting some of the walls. So we got, oh, yeah. <laughs> we got like one wall with some Jackson Pollock type of artwork that I threw on the wall. The rest of it is just like kind of concrete slabs that make it look like a prison. But uh, it's a lot of space. We got a couch. We got a couple tables. And it's all about the people in it, you know? Yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah. So did you literally... I mean, that's what it looks like. It literally looks like you took a paint can and just threw, threw a bunch of them against the... Uh... I wish it was a paint can. I actually used my hand and just grabbed the paint and threw it on the wall. But I, no way. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have done that. Anyway. I had an inspirational moment. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, so how often have you been told that true energy will never work? Uh, honestly, not that much. And the reason I say that is because so many of the people that are surrounding this are friends and family and uh, when I did the last round, most of them just said, Hey Jack, I'm betting on you. So when you hear that, it's like, damn, like whether they believe in the business or not, they believe I can find a way to get it done, which just adds more stress. Cause I'm like, Oh, well, geez, now if I fail, it's cause I failed, not cause the business failed. Yeah. Uh, I have a very, very supportive family and they, like my brother is my insurance agent for product liability. We're constantly sending certificates his way. My mom has essentially been the accountant for the last four years. And then my other two brothers help with just like marketing feedback and, and things like that. And the whole family has to be involved with the formulation stuff. And they're like, Jack, what the hell am I tasting right now? I'm like, just do it. Tell me how it tastes. And they don't even know what they're drinking half the time. <laughs> so that's like a, a solid family there. And then we also have uncles and aunts and cousins who kind of support the grind all around. So from from that standpoint, I'm I'm very lucky, and people are supportive. And the investors that don't invest, they they have their reasons. And I understand that we have a Everest type of a climb to actually succeed in this world. But that's why I wanted to do it because I'm thick headed. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's there's always going to be people who don't believe in it. But sure. <laughs> what I said, sure. Yeah, yeah there, of course. Yeah. Yeah, like, there's always going to be people who just don't think it's going to work. And fair enough. That's their opinion. Yeah, no, right. So I didn't realize it's much more of a, I guess, family ordeal business than I guess I originally realized. Uh, it is, yeah, it, you know what it is. I, I would consider it a family ordeal. I'd consider it a friend's ordeal. I'd consider it a mentor's ordeal. Like companies at this stage don't have 40 shareholders on their cap table. We do. And... Uh, there'll be some investors that look at that and say, this is not going to work because of that. Yeah. And then I'll say to them, well, we have 40 brand ambassadors that we don't pay any money to. They've paid us. They believe in the business. They believe in me. And by the way, when they email me, it's not for quarterlies. It's to add value. So if you don't see this as valuable, I don't think you're the right investor. So I, I'm fine with it. 
and we're going to bring on the right investors to, to get it to the next level. And yeah, this is a family, friends, and statewide ordeal at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right. How much of a motivator is money for you? Ah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd love to have a nice house on the water in Hermosa Beach, California, right now. That would that would, that would be great. But, yeah. And this is this is the truth. I uh, I'm actually more motivated by this being a win, and you can tie that to money if you want. But for me, it's about like, let's say we had a hundred investors when this exited. The happiest moment for me is going to be able to just give the other people their checks and say, thank you for believing in me. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's tied to money, but it's more tied to the money that I give to others. And that would be super cool. Yeah. And yeah, I'd also love to make some money for myself, but that's like, <laughs> that's a healthy, helpful aside. Right. Yeah. It's not huge for you, right? It would, would be, it would be nice, but I'm so used to living a life that doesn't necessarily need money at this point. And I'm happy. I've come to realize like happiness is not tied to money whatsoever. And I've met yep. some miserable people that are worth a lot of money. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it's really not the end of the road, but with money, you can also have the, the wherewithal and the, the ability to, to do amazing things. And whether it's starting another business or helping others or being able to travel, like those are the really cool things that, that money gives you. Um, but I haven't really not been able to do things that I wanted to, with the exception of like flying on a private jet, that would, that would be cool, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what does your daily routine look like these days? Uh, I mean, coronavirus has put us in remote mode, so I'm gonna I'm gonna step back a month and tell you what a normal yeah, day would look like. <laughs> uh, normally, I get up at like five fifteen, five thirty. I still live in the gym, uh, and our VC investor was like, "Hey, have you moved out of the gym?" Yeah, I was like, "No, we're not moving out of the gym until a Series A." That got delayed, so I might be here for another twelve months. <laughs> I uh, get out of the room and where I essentially shower and all that is like the communal locker room. So that's, that's my, that's my morning routine. Go in to work out with the guys from like 5.30 to 6.30. And then oftentimes I'll like sit in the conference room and just kind of unwind after the workout. Start work at 8 and Nick and Yash will have a team meeting at 8.30. Sometimes Josh is abroad or whatever, so we'll we'll bring him in. And then every single day is different in terms of the tasks I have to do. Some days are purely fundraising. Other days are following up with major retailers like a CVS or a Bartels. And then another day it'll be like, okay, we need to focus on the digital side. So my day on a day-to-day -day is, is pretty much different every single day. Yeah. Um, but the structure is the same, like we'll grab lunch at 12 and then we'll typically have a meeting at five and then people stay as long as they want to stay. And that could be five thirty, six thirty, seven, And I don't really care. Like if, if you can get the amount of work that you need to get done and put us in a position to succeed in six hours, so be it. If it's going to take you 14 hours, so be it. And that's, mm -hmm. that's the mindset we have, but it's also a structured mindset, like be on time, control the controllables, X, Y, Z. And um, and then we do meet on Saturdays. <clears throat> so we'll work from nine to one on Saturdays to prepare ourselves for the week because I don't think you should be doing that during the week. I think it's kind of it sets the, the week up right. Uh, mm -hmm. 
I don't know. Maybe that's kind of normal. Yeah, no, I think uh, sort of kind of the answer I was expecting from, uh, you know, a startup entrepreneur. It just, there is no kind of normal day. No. Like Sundays and Saturdays, you might end up working because it's just a necessary evil. And mm -hmm. I think everyone who's involved loves being involved. So it's not like, shit, I got to go to work. It's more like, oh, we get to kind of tackle this today. It's like, yeah, that's that's the mindset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As the name of my podcast is called uh, Driving Force, what's been your driving force that keeps you moving forward as an entrepreneur and grinding day in and day out to build your energy? It's two things. Um, one, I truly love building a business. And when I say that, I mean like turning some obscure idea into like a physical reality, something that you can touch, feel, hold, sell. Like that, that to me is really cool. And even once you've created that product, there's always ways to improve it. There's ways to innovate and extend your brand into other products and <clears throat> constantly getting to create. And that for me is like numero uno. Like I want to continue to do that. If, if this is successful, I'll probably do it again. And mm -hmm. the second thing is actually tied to winning. And again, I don't think it's money. I just think we, I want to win a Stanley Cup. And that's kind of how I think about this business. I want this business to win the Super Bowl and or a championship, some form of championship. And that means that all the investors are happy in some way, shape or form. I'm happy. Our employees are happy. Uh, everyone who's been a part of this can look at it and say, I was a part of that. That's 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 what I really want. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned there that if this is successful, you'd like to do it again. If it's not successful for you, uh, however that would look like, what do you think could potentially be next for you? It's hard for me to think like that because of a few things. And people have asked me that, and I, I said, well, I would love to start another business, but part of me doesn't think that it would be right. Because if I've taken other people's money and haven't been able to return on that investment, I almost feel like I haven't proven it to myself or others that I should be given more money to continue to do this. Mm -hmm. That's like how I feel in my heart. But if I go by my gut, I'd say, let's, let's freaking do it again. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, if not, maybe it's kind of sitting on the other side of the table and that's in the VC world, being able to impact other businesses in a positive way without necessarily having to hold it on your shoulders. Yeah, that could definitely be an interesting route. Um, uh, one of my, I think two interviews ago, I had um, with a former entrepreneur turned VC, and one of the things we touched on was, or one of the things that he touched on was that for him having founded, he founded an app um, uh, called Crash Alert, and basically detected auto, auto accidents in real time as they happened. Um, and then moved into being a venture capitalist. And he, he said that because he had the experience of being an entrepreneur, he's able to connect much better with entrepreneurs as an investor, whereas other guys, he may have gone the consulting or investment banking route. Um, and then moving into venture capital, he just can't connect with, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and these potential portfolio companies in the same way that, that he can because he had that experience. So, um, makes sense. Yeah. 
it's like when I speak to another entrepreneur who's gone through the grind, it's it's kind of like inherent that we both kind of get it. Yeah. And I don't mean get it from like a business standpoint, get it in terms of the grind. And it is it is a unique type of thing to to go through because it requires a a lot of ups and downs like mentally. Mm-hmm. I, I also equate that to sports as well. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Well, uh, before we wrap this up, um, maybe if you can leave one piece of advice for the aspiring entrepreneur who might be listening, what would you like to leave them with? Hmm. See, I, I knew that question was coming, <laughs> and I've actually been asked that question before, but I, I want to actually add some, some value here. Uh, so this will save people a lot of money. For me, when I when I started the business, I thought I was always right, so I just dove right in, kind of taking that mentality of Zuckerberg and like fail fast, fail mm-hmm. early. Um, in food and beverage, that can be a very dangerous thing because we, I did that, and I mentioned this on another podcast. I I spent essentially my life savings, which was like ten thousand dollars, on a manufacturing run that. I was like, oh, these guys are going to crush it. They're going to make the perfect bottle for us. And I didn't ask the right questions. And what ended up happening was the bottle leaked. The bottle wasn't as shiny as I was hoping for. The shape was slightly off. The cap didn't twist on perfectly. And when you manufacture abroad, it's not like, hey, can I have a refund? It's like, nah, screw you. That's our money now. And I, I burnt my life savings. The advice I would give entrepreneurs is don't be afraid to ask people for advice from all levels. Meaning you can ask your your brother like, hey, what do you think about this? But you can also reach out to the CEO of some company that's done it before saying, I'm an entrepreneur, I'd love your feedback on this. What's the right route to take? Or someone from the manufacturing background. And I was stunned at the amount of people that were willing to help. And I've met some really cool people just by asking them honest questions and telling them truly the situation I'm in. Um, so ask questions, learn, then make financial decisions. Don't go in thinking that it's okay to fail early and often. Go in knowing that you need to minimize your failures as best as possible, and you do that by learning. And do you think that part of the reason... Um, why you didn't ask those questions in the first place? Do you think it was more because that you didn't know which questions to ask or was it a fear of, I guess, for lack of a better term, or just like looking stupid? It wasn't about looking stupid. It was more about a unearned confidence. Walking into the game of food and beverage thinking that you're going to be the king of it in a matter of a few years. Okay. To me, like I almost thought that I couldn't fail. I'm pro hockey player, like going in the world of beverage, I'm going to crush it. And I I just jumped in so quickly without asking those questions because I thought I was asking the right ones. But you even have to, you have to ask people like, am I asking the right questions? That's mm-hmm. like the best question you can ask. And then they'll be like, well, no, you're missing this. You're missing this certification. Yeah, I'd be sitting here with 10,000 more dollars in my pocket had I asked a few more questions. So do that. Ask questions. Ask questions. All right. <laughs> ask questions. Um, well, this has been great. Um, I really appreciate you coming on, Jack. Um, Thank you for having me, Chase. This was fun. Yeah. Um, what's the best place for people to follow you and learn more about True Energy? Uh, so our website is drinktrue.com. We would love it for you guys to buy all of our products on there. That would be <laughs> great. Uh, my my tag on Instagram is at 
underscore Jack McNamara, same for Twitter and all that. And uh, shoot us an email at info at drinktrue.com. Really appreciate it. Awesome. And you guys can also follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes and on my endurance training journey. Uh, thanks, everyone who's listening, and see you next time.